Well, the title of this morning's message is Meaning in Mourning. And the more I thought about it, I think maybe it would be better if I just simply called it a sermon for Dylan and his family. I know most of you know the Linton family and their son Dylan, who has been battling with cancer for the second time now. And uh, during this hard trial, their hope has been in the promises of God, which has served as an anchor for their souls as they've been in the midst of this raging storm and being blown back and forth with all the, the good news and the bad news and the ups and downs of his treatment. And we know he's on, undergone, a, undergone a number of different treatments to fight off the cancer in his body. But this week, uh, the doctor told him and his family that his cancer has only gotten worse and there's nothing else they can do. And so from the doctor's perspective, Dylan only has a couple more days to live. And so he's now in hospice care at Houston Methodist downtown. His family is clinging to the gospel and waiting on the Lord to take him to heaven. And I texted Greg this morning and I encouraged him. I wasn't sure where they would all be, but I encouraged him to tune in on our live stream this morning because we couldn't be with them. But we wanted them to be with us. And uh, I know they are because Hannah just showed me a picture that they sent. They got a laptop on a little tray at the end of Dylan's bed. And uh, so they're here with us. And so, Dylan, it's hard to imagine that this may be the last sermon that you ever hear before you fall asleep and wake up in heaven. And uh, Hannah and Greg and Kim and Randy and Kaylee and Emily and Samantha, your spouses, your kids, we want you to know we love you guys, we're praying for you, and I want you to know that I picked this passage and crafted this sermon with you in mind. And so I hope and pray that it'll be a particular blessing and encouragement to you this morning, and I trust instructive to the rest of us as well. This past Friday afternoon, I got the call from Dylan's dad, and he told me there was a possibility that they might have to sedate Dylan to ease the pain and the suffering that he was about to go through, and they were inviting everyone down to the hospital to say their goodbyes, and Zach and Hannah and I were driving down to Houston. I was praying that God would grant me the appropriate thoughts and words and emotions that would suit the sad, painful situation at hand. And as I was anticipating the 
the heartbreaking scene that we were about to walk into, a couple passages came to my mind. The first one was the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus was grieving and wrestling with submitting to the Lord's will for his life. In his humanness, Jesus didn't want to die on the cross. He didn't want to be separated from his father. And in a similar way, no parent wants to see their child die from cancer and be separated from them. But in the midst of the pain and the grief, God grants us the grace to be able to pray with Jesus, not my will, but your will be done. The other passage that came to mind was John chapter 11. And if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn there with me, John chapter 11. And here, Jesus' most beloved disciple, John, described the scene surrounding the death and resurrection of Lazarus. And there's a lot of similarities to this scene and the scene that we experienced on Friday evening in Dylan's hospital room. And as I was thinking about this passage driving to the hospital, the one thing I remembered, strangely enough, from when I taught through this gospel some five years ago or so, was Jesus' mixed reaction when he arrived on the scene. Obviously, he was sad. We, we know that. He wept. But he was also mad. Now, I'm sure that sounds strange at first, but as we're about to see, when Jesus showed up at Lazarus' tomb and he saw his family members and friends weeping and mourning, he expressed, first of all, his grief and sorrow and wept along with them, but at the same time, he responded in anger at the pain and the grief and the sorrow that sin and death and Satan had caused in the lives of those who were so precious to him. You may remember that when Jesus told the parable of the wheat and the tares, he said that the weeds in the field were planted by the enemy. He said, the enemy has done this. And we know sin, death, and Satan are the enemy of every one of us. The world we live in is cursed by sin. It's controlled by Satan in the sense of God delegating to him for a season control of the world, obviously under the sovereign control of God Almighty. But because we live in a sin-cursed world and in a world that's controlled by Satan, that's why we experience so much pain and suffering and mourning and heartache in our lives. In fact, it's not just us who grieve and groan. It's the, the whole creation, according to Romans 8.22, the whole creation groans and suffers And while Dylan has been groaning in pain in his hospital bed, the entire world, the, the entire creation has been groaning for relief from this curse of sin. The good news, actually the best news ever, 
is that God himself came to earth in human form and he died and he rose again to deliver us from the curse of sin, death, and the devil. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 says, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, likewise, talking about Jesus, also partook of the same. He partook of flesh and blood. He became a man that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that's the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. And here in this passage, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he was providing really a preview of his own death and resurrection, by which he would conquer these great enemies of our soul. And in John's mind, apart from the resurrection of Christ himself, which he was going to get to in the last chapter, the resurrection of Lazarus provided the greatest proof that Jesus truly was the Son of God. And he included it, this miracle in his gospel so that people would place their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So that they could experience abundant life and eternal life in heaven. In fact, the, the, the purpose of this gospel is clearly stated in John chapter 20, verse 31. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The emphasis of this chapter, John 11, is on faith. Some word or form of the word believe occurs at least eight times. For example, verse 15, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. Verse 26, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Verse 42, I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me, verse 45, therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. And so this passage is all about believing in Jesus, trusting in Jesus. And I think that Jesus performed this particular miracle not only to stimulate faith in those that had yet to believe in him, but also to strengthen the faith of those who had already believed in him. And I think we all know by now that growing in faith oftentimes requires going through pain and suffering. And that's what's happening in this story. That's what's happening in room 1703 at Houston Methodist. And I think it's a great reminder for us this morning that there is meaning in our mourning. James chapter 1 verse 2 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 1 Peter 5.10, uh, Peter says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Strangely enough, it actually says something similar about Jesus himself in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, that in his humanity, Jesus was perfected from the things which he suffered. 
And so suffering strengthens, grows, matures our faith in Christ. And so I want us to see how Jesus here was focused on faith. He was focused on the faith of his disciples. We can call them his students. He was focused on the faith of the sisters, Mary and Martha. And he was focused on the faith of the spectators, those who were kind of looking in from the outside, the unbelievers who were observing or who would observe this miracle. Let's look first of all at the faith of the students. And, and, and by the way, we know this to be true, that all throughout Jesus' ministry, he was constantly trying to increase the faith of his disciples, wasn't he? Because he knew that after he returned to heaven, they would be left with the responsibility to carry on without him, albeit he gave them the Holy Spirit. But in this particular context, in light of the fact that he had been accused, he had just been accused of blasphemy and was rejected by the religious leaders, they all just had to flee for their lives. If you look back in chapter 10, he claimed that he and the Father were one, and it says, verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And then verse 39, therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. So these guys were on the run, Jesus and his disciples. And so they needed their faith bolstered, strengthened. And so let's see how he does that. Verse 1, now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, uh, the, the village of uh, Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary, who anointed the Lord with an ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Here we're introduced uh, for the first time by John to this family who were dear friends of Jesus, a brother and two sisters, Lazarus and uh, Martha and Mary. They lived in a little village called Bethany which is located about two miles away from Jerusalem on the east side of the Mount of Olives. And apparently Jesus was a frequent guest in their home whenever he visited Jerusalem. We know that in Luke chapter 10 and the whole scene with um, Mary sitting at Jesus' feet while Martha was running around trying to get the meal ready. And, um, but it's interesting here that John highlights or spotlighted Mary as the one who anointed Jesus' uh, feet with oil, wiped his feet with her hair. Uh, we're going to, you, you can just read that account in the next chapter, chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. This is um, her widely known act of devotion. And so he introduces the family, but then notice verse 3. So the sisters sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Let me read that again. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews... We're just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Uh, 
So here we find Lazarus deathly sick. So his sisters sent someone to tell Jesus, assuming that he would immediately come heal him like he had done so many other people who he didn't even know or have a relationship with or love as much as he loved them. Notice three times John mentioned the love that Jesus had for Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. Verse 3 said, The Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And then again in verse 36. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. And so based on how much Jesus loved Lazarus, loved his sisters, loved this family, you would expect the text to say, verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus, and he dropped everything and rushed immediately to their home. But instead it says he decided to stay two more days on the east side of the Jordan River. And we should ask ourselves, what's up with that? Well, as we're going to see, when Jesus finally arrived at Lazarus' tomb, four days had passed. And it was a two-day journey. And so it took a day to get there, it took a day to get back there, and so Lazarus was probably already dead by the time Jesus got the news that he was sick. He probably died the same day the messenger arrived. Granted, Jesus knew that Lazarus' sickness would take his life, but it wouldn't end his life. Jesus knew that. That this sickness would take Lazarus' life, but it wouldn't end his life. And Jesus wanted him to die. So he could bring him back to life, which would bring God and his son great glory by proving that he was indeed the son of God, the Messiah. In fact, just in a previous chapter, look back at John chapter 9. Verse 1, as he passed by, Jesus saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was that the works of God might be displayed in him. This is very helpful for us because we should never, ever assume that whenever we get sick that God is somehow displeased with us or punishing us for some sin we've committed. One commentator said this, there is absolutely no suggestion in this text that Lazarus' sickness was a result of some special sin in his life. Rather, he's presented as a devoted disciple and special object of the Savior's love. Godly people get sick, and it's not always God's will that a person is healed from their sickness. 
Sometimes God allows his people to get sick and to stay sick, to reveal his glory by the way that he graciously grants them the strength and the stamina to endure and to rejoice in their pain and suffering. My son Zach sent me a picture yesterday of, that he took when I was standing over Dylan and just talking with Dylan and, and I sent a little um, text back to Zach thanking him and I said, you got to love Dylan's smile. He was smiling. The guy's dying, but he's smiling. God gets great glory from that. What a powerful testimony. And so even though Jesus knew the pain and the agony that Lazarus would have to experience and the grief and the anguish that his sisters would have to endure, he ordained it all for the Father's glory. It's hard to watch someone you love go through pain and difficulty, but it helps to know that somehow, even if we don't know how, that God is being glorified in it. It's not ours to figure out how. It's ours to trust God that he says he'll do it. And so we're going to just rest in him that he'll do it. Warren Wearsby says it this way so well. He said, God's love for his own is not a pampering love. It's a perfecting love. The fact that he loves us and that we love him is no guarantee that we will be sheltered from the problems and pains of life. After all, the father loves his son, and yet the father permitted his beloved son to drink the cup of sorrow and experience the shame and pain of the cross. We must never think that love and suffering are incompatible. Certainly, they unite in Jesus Christ. Amen? Back to the story, verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. The disciples thought Jesus was crazy to want to go anywhere near Jerusalem since the Jews were not just plotting to kill him, they were actually attempting to kill him. But Jesus assured them that as long as he was doing God's will and doing God's work, then God would protect him, God would preserve him. He was walking in the light, if you will, which keeps you from stumbling. But, again, instructive for all of us, if we're not living according to God's will, if we're doing our own thing, it's like we're walking in the dark and we're bound to stumble and fall at some point. Notice verse 11. This he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. In other words, do we really need to go then? You sure that's necessary? He's going to wake up. Verse 13, now Jesus has spoken of his death, 
But they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Jesus likened Lazarus' dying to falling asleep, which is a metaphor uh, for death in the New Testament. If you ever have been at a funeral and there's an open casket and you observe the, the dead body, it looks like the person's sleeping, doesn't it? Again, this is simply figurative language here, never intended to teach what's called soul sleep, that your soul lives in an unconscious state until um, your body is resurrected in the end. The Bible clearly teaches that when a believer dies, their soul is instantly in the presence of God. When the thief cried out on the cross next to Jesus, right, have mercy on me, Uh, remember me in your kingdom, he didn't say, yeah, in a thousand years you'll be with me in paradise. No, he said, today, today you'll be with me in paradise. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. Only one of two places you can be, here or there. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul said this, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I'm to live on, this, uh, live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard pressed from both directions having the desire to be apart and be with Christ for that is very much better. Paul wouldn't be wrestling with should I stay or should I go if he was going to have to spend the next millennium waiting for his soul to catch up with his glorified body Uh, Some out there somewhere not enjoying the presence of the Lord immediately, instantly. And so again, the disciples thought Jesus was just saying that Lazarus was just sleeping. And so they wanted to use as an excuse not to go to Bethany. And so Jesus clarified that Lazarus was indeed dead. And he was glad that he hadn't been there to keep him alive because now their faith would be greatly strengthened seeing him raised from the dead. And so Jesus saw this as an opportunity for, or to demonstrate and certify him as the Son of God and confirm the faith of his disciples and also the family of Lazarus. Verse 16, you got to love Thomas. Therefore Thomas, who's called Didymus, the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. (laughs) Thomas is mentioned several times in John's gospel, most notoriously in chapter 20, right, when he refused to believe that Christ had risen from the dead unless he could put his hands in the nail scars in his hands and side, and, and that's why he's earned the nickname forever as Doubting Thomas, right? Well, while he may have seemed to come across here kind of gloomy, kind of pessimistic, we might as well go and die with Jesus. Hey, the guy was expressing bravery and loyalty to his Lord, even though his faith needed some strengthening. And that was the whole point, is Jesus was wanting to strengthen his faith and the rest of the disciples' faith. But he was also... Concerned about strengthening the faith of Mary and Martha. 
Notice, secondly, the faith of the sisters. Verse 17, so when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. I think the reason why John emphasized the four days is so that when Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead, there would be no one able to claim that he wasn't really dead. You don't just pass out for four days, right? You don't fall asleep for four days. You know, he was dead. Verse 18, now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So Bethany, again, as I mentioned earlier, was in close proximity to Jerusalem. And so lots of their friends, their relatives were able to come and mourn with them. In those days, they even hired professional wailing women that would just stand outside and cry. Add to the drama, the grief, the mourning of the moment. Verse 20, Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. So here's the Martha we know and love, right? The aggressive one. The, the one who heard that Jesus was coming and she immediately ran to meet him on the outskirts of town. Couldn't even wait for him to get there. And then the more contemplative Mary stayed back, hung back. But notice here, both sisters said the same exact thing when they saw Jesus. Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Look at verse 32. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same response. And yet Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, knew that they both needed a different response from him. He ministered to both of them, but in a very unique and specific way. Martha needed to know that Jesus was in control. That's what Martha needed to know, maybe because she was kind of a control freak herself. I'm not sure, but she needed to know that, that Jesus was in control. She needed theology at that moment. Mary, on the other hand, just needed to know that Jesus cared. She just needed sympathy. She just needed Jesus to be there. And so Jesus engaged, as we'll see in a second here, in a theological discussion with Martha and provided her intellectual support. He challenged her. Whereas Mary fell down at Jesus' feet broken and grieving, and so Jesus provided her emotional support. He just cried with her. I think this is, again, instructive to us that no matter what we're going through, Jesus knows exactly what we need and will minister to us accordingly, specifically. And we should never doubt that God is in control, and we should never doubt that God cares. Don't waste your time brooding over the if-onlys. If only you were here, Jesus. If only we hadn't moved here. If only we hadn't got married. If only... I hadn't taken this job. If only we had more money. If only, if only. 
But notice that the first thing that Martha did that when, Jesus, when she saw Jesus was just honestly express how she felt. She was honestly disappointed that he hadn't come sooner and had kept Lazarus from dying. Again, I think this is good for us to, to be reminded of that we need to be honest with God with what we're thinking and how we're feeling, even if we know it might not be right. Be honest with God. Tell Him what you're thinking. Tell Him what you're feeling. He knows. He knows you've got to work through it. But notice how Martha quickly, after being honest about the way she was thinking and feeling... She immediately expressed her confidence in the fact that Jesus could bring about good from this tragedy. Again, verse 4, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified by it. Verse 40, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And based on what Martha said next, I don't think she was expecting Jesus to raise her brother from the dead right then and there. Notice verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So Jesus told her that your brother will rise from the dead, and she affirmed that she believed in the resurrection of the dead in the last day. But Martha didn't realize that Jesus was not talking about the last day. He was talking about that very day. And then we come to the heart, the core of this text. Probably the verses that are most familiar to all of us. Jesus said to her, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Again, Jesus was, I think, anticipating his second coming when he will resurrect the buried bodies of all true believers and reunite them with their souls and replace their earthly bodies um, of those who are still living when he returns with glorified bodies that will never die. We see this um, explained to us by Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Paul says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who have died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. By the way, that describes the, the lost, those that don't have Christ, that when someone they know and love dies, they, they grieve without any hope of ever seeing them ever again. But we as believers can grieve. It doesn't say don't grieve, quit your grieve. And no, it says grieve, but grieve with hope. What's the hope? 
Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, those who have died in Christ. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. In other words, we will be together with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. In other words, if someone dies in Christ and leaves behind someone who is in Christ, it's not goodbye, it's what? See you later. I'll see you later. And so Jesus, I think, was thinking of his second coming, but at the same time, he wanted to know if Martha believed that he had the power to resurrect Lazarus from the dead right then and there. Listen to her confession. In John, back in John 11, verse 27, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. That confession by Martha of faith in Christ is no less significant than Peter's confession when Jesus asked his disciples, hey, who does the world say that I am? And they told him a few options and said, who do you say that I am? And what did Peter say? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. We all know and love that confession. Well, Martha's is right up there with it. I have believed that you are the Christ, the son of God, even he who comes into the world. Verse 28 when she said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Verse 30, now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then verse 35. The shortest, sweetest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. So Martha runs back to the house. Whispers in Mary's ear, hey, Jesus is coming. He's asking for you. She immediately gets up and runs to see him. Those who are there trying to comfort her assume that she's going back to the tomb, so they, they follow her. And Jesus, or Mary sees Jesus, and she just crumples to the ground at his feet, sobbing uncontrollably. And 
He saw her and he saw everyone else who had come to mourn with her. And it says he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And the words there that are used in the Greek language are only used for anger. I don't think this was so much inward grief as it was, again, anger at the pain and the sorrow that sin and death had caused these people who were so dear to him. One commentator put it this way, doubtless Jesus thought of all the sadness, suffering, and death which had come into the world as a result of man's sin. The fact that Jesus wept was an evidence of his true humanity. He shed real tears of grief when he witnessed the terrible effects of sin on the human race. And that makes God cry. Is Jesus not God? This is one of three times in the New Testament when Jesus shed tears. Once when he was riding into Jerusalem knowing that he was about to be rejected and crucified by his people that he'd come to save, he wept. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, it says, In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. I think he cried in the Garden of Gethsemane, and maybe other times during prayer and communion with his father. But I point that out because I think Christ's tears revealed his humanity and therefore his ability to relate to our pain and suffering. He was a man of sorrows, it says, acquainted with grief. He gets it. He's been there. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, Therefore, Jesus had to be made like us, or like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he, which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted or tested or tried. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize or empathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Christ went through all that he went through so he could be our compassionate friend to minister to us when we go through what we go through. Again, Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. In other words, when Jesus weeps, God weeps. God is not some detached, emotionless, stoic being, sitting up on his throne, 
without any feeling, just coldly controlling our lives. No, he's moved by human pain and sorrow. He enters into our pain and sorrow. He grieves with us. He feels our pain. And the emotion that he expresses, again, is evidence of how much he loves us. Verse 36, so the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. Man, did Jesus really love Lazarus? And again, this is so helpful for us because I think it's not uncommon for any of us in the midst of a, a sorrowful or painful trial to think or say, you know, if, if God really loves me so much, then why would he let me go through this? Why does it seem like he doesn't care? I know the Bible says he loves me, but I'm not feeling it. And again, I think we have a wonderful example of how we must cling to Christ by faith in times of crisis. We, we must never think that God is late. Well, Jesus, if you just gotten here a few minutes earlier, things would be totally different, right? No, God, God's right on time. He's always on time. God's delays are not God's denials, Someone said it this way, if our prayers are not answered immediately, perhaps he is teaching us to wait. And if we wait patiently, we will find that he will answer our prayers in a much more marvelous way than we ever anticipated. And so when we're asked to wait on God's plan and to wait for God's pace, that strengthens our faith. And so Jesus was concerned about the faith of his disciples. He was concerned about the faith of Lazarus' sisters. But he was also concerned about the faith of the Jews who were there mourning the loss of Lazarus but didn't know him, didn't know Christ. They never committed their life to Christ, didn't believe in Christ. Verse 37, but some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again, being deeply moved, there's the, again, the whole angry, righteous indignation at the, at the curse of sin and, and death and hell and the devil came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. And so again, we see Christ's holy wrath and righteous rage being directed towards sin and death. And ultimately, toward the one behind it all, the one who he came into the world to defeat and destroy, and that's Satan. Jesus knew the enemy, the enemy had done this, and he approached the tomb of Lazarus in the words of John Calvin as a champion who prepares for conflict against Satan himself. He was going to war with Satan. Tombs back then were carved out of limestone, maybe a cave in the side of a hill or underground with this large stone placed over the opening of the grave. Verse 39, Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. So Mary, or, or excuse me, um, Martha the sensible one, right? Said, whoa, whoa, time out. 
Um, he's been in there decomposing for about four days now. Uh, man, the smell's going to be awful. The Jews didn't embalm bodies like the Egyptians. They just wrapped them loosely in some cloths with some spices. And so Jesus reminded her of the original message he sent back to her when he received the news that Lazarus was sick. Remember verse 4? But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified by it. I think he meant that message to go back to Martha. And he reminds her again in verse 40, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Verse 41, so they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eye and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear, I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. Interesting, Jesus didn't ask God to raise Lazarus from the dead, but simply thanked him for already answering his prayers to do so. Jesus was already planning on doing this. So he's just thanking God for answering his prayers. And the reason he prayed out loud was so that the unbelieving bystanders would believe that God was actually his father and that he was his obedient son who lived to bring him honor and glory. Verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with cloth. And Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Commentators for centuries have been saying that if Jesus had mentioned Lazarus by name, that all the dead people in that grave would have come out with him. Because these were usually group burials, sites. Maybe up to eight occupants in these tombs at, at one time. And let me just say, this scene is impossible to exposit. <laughs> you just got to envision it, imagine it. A mummy... Looking dude hopping or shuffling out of the tomb, all wrapped up with claws, and, and as his family and friends unwrapped him, the funeral turned into a party. Their sorrow turned to joy. Their mourning gave way to dancing. And like every other miracle Jesus performed, there was a divided response. Verse 45, therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. These people got saved. They put their faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior sent from God to die on the cross for their sin. I mean, who else but God could do that? This miracle undeniably proved the deity of Christ, and they believed it. But others were still not convinced. And they went and told the Pharisees, verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. And by the way, if you know the rest of the story, the Pharisees added Lazarus to their hit list right next to Jesus. Since so many people were believing in Jesus because he had raised Lazarus from the dead. So they wanted to destroy the evidence. This guy's walking around 
Everybody knew he died. Now he's alive. How'd that happen? Well, it's Jesus. Well, let's get rid of that guy. He's bad for business. Again, the death and resurrection of Lazarus was simply a preview of the death and resurrection of Jesus. It also anticipated the final day when Jesus will return to resurrect all those who believe in him. And John had already mentioned this in John chapter 5, verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Verse 28, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Listen, beloved, all of us are dead in our trespasses and sins. And we deserve to die and go to hell. But if we repent of our sin and we place our faith in Jesus Christ alone, then he will make us alive spiritually And we will live forever, literally, with him in heaven. And so my question for you this morning is, do you know, do you know for sure that you're going to heaven when you die? You say, how can I know? Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Dylan believes this. And that's why just like Lazarus, when this awful sickness takes his life, it won't be the end of his life. Because when he dies, the resurrected one will resurrect him. And one day give him a glorified body, free from cancer, but more importantly, free from sin. The Bible says that in heaven there is no sin. There is no death. There is no Satan. And so that means also in heaven there is no pain, there's no sorrow, there's no tears, there's nothing but everlasting peace and joy and laughter. And the book of Revelation says that there will come a day when God will wipe away all of our tears. I want to close with a quote from a a little book that has become real precious to me personally. It's called The Mission of Sorrow. And I was reminded of it this week as I was thinking how to best minister to this precious family who's going through this difficult time. And I pulled it off the shelf and I just reread it. I just skimmed through it, looked at all my highlights and stars and underlines. And the last chapter of this book, The Mission of Sorrow... By the way, it was written by Spring Gardner, who he wrote it, a pastor, writing it during the Civil War, and, and how he looked around and saw the chaos of, of all these young men dying for what? 
here we were killing one another and it seems senseless. And so there were so many families grieving the loss of their, their, their sons to the Civil War. And um, so he wrote this book, The Mission of Sorrow, to comfort families. And the last chapter is titled, No Sorrow There. And it's a chapter about heaven. And this is what he said. Oh, that I could direct the eyes of the mourner upward. And in these hours of darkness, bid his heart rest on that blessed world where in a few short hours, all, both among the living and the dead, who fear God and love his son, will meet in holier and more intimate fellowship. Up there, sin and sorrow and death never enter. Up there, sighs and farewells are a sound unknown. Up there, the holy men and women who parted at the grave, redeemed parents and their redeemed children, will meet not to recount their own sorrows, but to tell of him who came to the humiliation of the manger and the agonies of the cross to rescue them from endless weeping and infinite despair. Let's pray. Father, how we long to be in heaven, to be done with suffering and pain and grief and mourning here on this sin-cursed earth. But as we continue to persevere in this painful pilgrimage, I pray that you would help us to remember the words of the Apostle Paul, Lord, that we would consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us, that this affliction is relatively speaking, momentary and light compared to what it's producing for us, this eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Father, we have hope and comfort in knowing that you never waste pain. There hasn't been one second of Dylan's pain or that family's pain that's been wasted, has been for nothing but it's serving your sovereign purposes for your glory, their good, our good. And while we know that's true, Lord, I pray that you would be gracious to them, be gracious to us. May we be your hands, your feet, your mouthpiece. May you love them and care for them through us, the body of Christ. Thank you that we don't have to go through whatever we're going through alone. We know you're there. We know Christ is there. We know your Holy Spirit is there. And we know the body of Christ is there. And so, Lord, I pray that you would Get great glory from Dylan's life and Dylan's death. And may he fall off into eternity 
knowing that to live is Christ and to die is gain. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.